Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome, welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. Frankie V with you, as I am every time we meet. Now today I have two friends with me. One is the Holy Spirit. The other is my dog, Teddy who is sitting right now on the couch to my right, fascinated by the platinum blue microphone in which I am speaking. Teddy is a shorky. That being translated means he's part Ewok and part Wookie. Anyway, next time we meet, in the next episode of this podcast, I will have a human conversation partner (laughs) who you will love. Now... Today we're going to continue our discussion on every reference to the kingdom of God in the Gospels. And we're going to look at just one of those references in a few minutes. But first I want to say that based on the comments I have received on this podcast, episode 76, which dropped in January, has been said to be the best interview that I have ever done. And I give Brian Russell credit for that. The man asked me questions that no other interview has ever asked. He was Larry King on that (laughs) podcast episode. So if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It also sets up the new direction that we have taken in this podcast. And if you haven't noticed already, we're dropping these episodes every other week rather than weekly as we used to do with the first 75 episodes, which I encourage you to go back and listen to if you haven't done so already. One of the things that mystifies me is occasionally I will look at the analytics of the episodes. And some of the episodes will have 6,000, 7,000, 9,000 downloads. That includes streaming. Others will have 2,000, 3,000. And I don't quite understand that because every single episode builds on the others. So to listen to episodes in a piecemeal fashion is kind of like taking a book that has 50 chapters in it and reading chapter 20 and then reading chapter 31 and then reading chapter 52 and then reading chapter 5. You're not going to get the whole message and this is why sometimes people will email me asking questions about a particular podcast episode and those questions have already been answered in previous episodes. So I will encourage you if you are listening to any of these episodes, particularly this one, of course, to set your intention on hearing all of them. And that will give you the full breadth of the gospel of the kingdom as we have been unveiling it. And then, of course, the book Insurgents goes into much more detail. It covers topics that are not addressed in this podcast. And so if you look at the podcast as a volume and you look at the book Insurgents, You can put those two together side by side on a bookshelf as volume one and volume two, the podcast being volume two. 
they supplement each other, they build on each other, they work together. Now before we get into today's passage, which is the second reference to the kingdom in the Gospels, I want to make a few added points to the last episode, in which we looked at the very first reference to the kingdom in Mark, which is Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now I'm reading from the New King James. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now some translations do not have the gospel of the kingdom of God. They just say the gospel. And so this is a manuscript difference. I, of course, prefer the gospel of the kingdom of God. But if you don't, that's fine. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. <laughs> Verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or is arriving. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is revolution in those opening words. One of the dominating questions that the people of Israel were poised to ask is this. Is this, this prophet Jesus and his message, is this what we're supposed to expect? Is Jesus of Nazareth the one? This is the question that John the Baptist put to the Lord when he was at his darkest moment. What was in the air is the question, who is this person, the son of David? And was Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah? And it is clear from reading the Gospels that Jesus was redefining what Israel thought the Messiah was according to their own expectations. And so here is Jesus picking up where John the Baptist left off, bringing the same message, get ready for what God is about to do next. This is the time. All of the prophecies of the covenant have been fulfilled. And what we see before Jesus makes this announcement is John the Baptist baptizing in the river Jordan. And then, of course, he baptizes Jesus. And so when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended on him. And then the Father's voice broke through the earthly realm and said, This is my beloved Son. Now, Jewish kings were anointed when they were installed as king. And so the image of the dove upon the Lord Jesus was in fact the anointing of his kingship. The Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Again, a reference to the Messiah. Because the Messiah was referred to not only as the king of the Jews, but also the Son of God himself, who has come to end Israel's exile and to restore the Davidic kingdom. So all of that is in the baptism of Jesus, which precedes his announcement that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is arriving. This is all before chapter 1, verse 14. And that's the beginning point of our Lord's ministry. It's the point in which the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven was coming into the earth. And John baptizing Jesus by the Jordan speaks of a new exodus because the Jordan River was where Israel crossed to get into the new land. So this was the symbol that the new exodus was beginning. And so we see right here after the Lord's baptism, his proclamation of a gospel, he is beginning his commission. Now right after this, he goes into the wilderness where he is tempted. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days by 
the enemy. And that corresponds to the 40 years of temptation that Israel endured. So after the wilderness temptations, Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And then, beginning in verse 16, he begins selecting his disciples. And of course, there are 12 disciples. There are not 13 or 11 or 15 or 20. There are 12. What's happening? Jesus, the new Israel, who went into the wilderness, was tempted for 40 days, is now replicating the 12 tribes of Israel. So all of this connotes a new beginning. God is starting again. Jesus, who was faithful during those temptations where Old Testament Israel had failed, begins proclaiming and embodying the kingdom of God in his deeds and in his words. He was saying, in effect, the kingdom of God was not like you had imagined. And he begins to teach in parables not long after this. In those parables, we will see the next mention of the kingdom. But the parables contain echoes of Jeremiah and Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets. And the message there is that God is going to someday return. This, in effect, was what the prophets were all proclaiming. And through the message of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing, his parables were warnings and challenges and promises. He was in effect saying to Israel, yes, your hopes are being fulfilled, but not in the way that you expect or in the way you imagine or in the way you had thought. God will be king again. The new exodus is here. It's underway, but it's not going to look anything like you had thought. I have said that the kingdom of God is the manifestation of God's ruling presence. The kingdom in the New Testament includes three elements. The king, which is Jesus, that focuses on the word presence, the manifestation of God's ruling presence. The second element is his rule, his reign, that focuses on the word ruling. And then the third element is the people ruled which focuses on the word manifestation. That is how the kingdom is manifested. It is through the people who are ruled. First, Jesus being ruled by God the Father, and then the disciples. First followers, as well as all followers after them, which would include you and me. It is through us that the kingdom is manifested. And so this business of Jesus constituting a new Israel, a new corporate people, the people of God, through his disciples, is key to this whole thing. That's why after he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, beginning in verse 16 all the way to verse 20, he is putting together his first followers. He is calling people to be his disciples. And that calling continues into chapter 2, with Matthew, the tax collector, being called to follow him. And then when you get to chapter 2, verse 13, here you have Jesus taking the twelve up into a mountain, his kingdom community. And so consequently, the point here is that the gospel of the kingdom is dynamic in its society-forming and community-building properties. And I have said so many times in my spoken messages and in my books, and I made a big point about this in the book Insurgents, is you cannot separate the ecclesia from the kingdom of God. And so many preachers and commentators and teachers have made them utterly separate. 
And they'll always say things like, well, Jesus only mentioned the ecclesia twice, but he mentioned the kingdom of God X number of times. That is simply a misreading of the Gospels. Every time you see those 12 disciples with Jesus, you're seeing the embryonic expression of the ecclesia. And Jesus used the kingdom to refer to the people ruled, which in the New Testament is called the ecclesia. That is the kingdom community. It is God's society. It is the new society, the new Israel, quote unquote. And so this whole business about the ecclesia and the kingdom being two completely different things, separate, that view has been excoriated. And I'm just underlining the fact. Now, part of the problem is many Christians think ecclesia means two hours in a building on Sunday morning. And I would agree if that's how you're defining ecclesia or all the Christians just scattered all over the world. And that's all it means. Individual pieces of the body of Christ. If that's how you view ecclesia, which is a misunderstanding of that term, then it certainly is not the kingdom of God. But the kingdom and the ecclesia cannot be separated according to the New Testament. Remember, the kingdom includes the king, his rule, and the people ruled. All those three things. And the latter is the kingdom community, the ecclesia of God. And so that's why we see very clearly in the Gospel of Mark, John the Baptist baptizing, signifying the new exodus, Jesus being driven into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation, then Jesus launching his kingdom ministry by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, in effect, proclaiming an insurgence. And then right after him forming his kingdom community through the 12. Now that brings us to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to begin by reading verse 20. Then the multitudes came together again, so that they, they there is referring to Jesus and his 12 disciples, so that they could not so much as eat bread. Now that is a very interesting passage. I want to paint the scene for you. I want you to think of a home, this is where they are, that is so crowded that Jesus and the disciples cannot take their hand and put it to their mouth. We know they went into a house because in verse 19 it says, and they went into a house. <laughs> so it's wall-to-wall people. And Jesus is healing. Jesus is casting out demons. There's a man who can't stand up straight and the Lord touches him. And now he stands up straight and he rejoices and the whole crowd rejoices. And some cannot see what's going on because they're too far away from the Lord. And the man presses through the crowd to go out the door and he's rejoicing. And people are asking him, what happened? Oh, I was healed. I, I could not stand up straight for 12 years. Another person has a demon in them. And the crowd hears a bloody scream. The demon is being expelled from his body. And he comes out of that house in his right mind. There's some scratches all over his body from the times that he clawed himself. And now he is fully healed. And this is happening from person to person to person. Jesus is healing. Jesus is delivering. Jesus is casting out demons as he ministers to this crowd. And it is absolutely fascinating that the next verse, verse 21, we have this statement. But when his own people heard about this, now this, many scholars believe it's his own family, and other translations have that. So it's his brothers and his sisters and his mother. It's the whole band. When they heard about this, 
They went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now just freeze the frame for a minute. His own kin are shocked at what's happening. He's gone, stark, raving mad. I think that tells us something. It tells us he's probably lived a very unimpressive life for the first 30 years. But they had known him. Uh, they were surprised at what was happening. They didn't say, oh yeah, we, we've known all along, he's crazy. <laughs> They're horrified. He's lost his mind, they say. Here he is, shaking the rafters, doing incredible things. We don't understand it. Uh, they tried to get him out of there. But we see they were not successful. And here's the next verse. The scribes came down from Jerusalem. So word obviously spread that all of this, I should say, chaos. Chaos because of the crowds, the excitement, the euphoria, and the puzzlement about these healings and dramatic casting out of demons. All of this was creating quite a stir. And so his family wants to take him out and lock him up. They have the very definite impression that he has to stop this. <laughs> And uh, the scribes come, and it would be very difficult for me to communicate to you how much knowledge a scribe of that day had. It boggles the mind how much information that their human brains could hold. The typical scribe in the first century would put to shame the greatest theologian and scholar today in terms of knowledge and information. And I want to repeat the words of Paul, knowledge puffs up. In the words of the Gospels, the religious leaders reasoned, but Jesus perceived. Very different kind of operation between perceiving and reasoning. These scribes, these teachers of the law, are watching all of this happening. Demons being cast out, people being healed of Afflictions that were visible. Blind eye being opened up. A deaf person in the town who is known to be deaf now has his ears open and he can hear. And then, of course, the demonized being healed. These were not the kind of healings that we often hear today, which I will not denigrate, but very often when people have healing ministries, they're not healing people who have blind eyes, who are deaf, people who uh, have the palsy and cannot walk. The healings that so often occur in these healing ministries are healings that really can't be verified. I have a pain in my back and my neck, or I have a headache, or I have inflammation in my arm. And the Lord does heal those sorts of things through prayer. But the kind of power that was going on here was in a totally different league. And I just make that as an observation, something to think about. But it's relevant to the point I'm going to make here about how the scribes responded. And here's how they respond. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. My goodness. These scribes, these are the religious teachers of Jerusalem. They are God's leaders, quote-unquote, to the people. There is no hint, no scent, that they're glorifying God in any way for the healings, the demons being cast out. They can't deny this is happening. They don't come in and say, oh, he's a magician, or 
he paid these people and they're faking it. That's not their accusation. They knew he was healing people and delivering people of their illnesses and sicknesses and torturous torment by demonic beings. They knew this. Not one hint of glorifying God. Not one cent of thanking God. Nothing in them is registering that this is a wonderful thing that these people are being touched and changed, transformed and healed. It's an incredible thing to behold. Instead, immediately they drop to the lowest possible level imaginable. This man Jesus is full of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, people today uh, who oppose the servants of the Lord, and, and unfortunately most of them are Christian people, religious people, and people with a lot of Bible knowledge, quote-unquote, like the scribes, they will call you a heretic. Well, he's a heretic, or he has poor theology, or even a false prophet. And sometimes they will say, like these scribes, he is the servant of Satan, or he is a tool of the devil. And once you make proclamations like that against any person who is serving the Lord, you have just descended into a scribe. And Jesus makes some very strong statements about that later in verse 28, which I'm not going to read. I'm not going to cover that, but it has to do with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, my point here is that there are men and women in the Christian fold who are apt to consign everything they do not understand to the works of hell and to the direction of the devil. And knowledge of the scripture and knowledge of theology without knowing the Lord himself will open you up to that kind of accusatory spirit and maligning. Jesus said to the religious leaders in one place, you err greatly. You are in great error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. What's fascinating about that is they knew the scriptures, but they knew them only in the mind. They did not know them in the heart and the spirit. And Jesus Christ always aims at the spirit and the heart, where the scribes and the Pharisees and even the Sadducees, they aimed at the frontal lobe. And that, brothers and sisters, is not going to get you very far in the spiritual walk. It has its place, but it is so limited. Notice they're not saying that Jesus has a demon. It's much worse than that. They're saying he is Beelzebub himself. He is the Lord of the flies. He, in effect, is the prince of the demons. That's who's in him, operating in him. They couldn't deny that the healings and the deliverance was happening because it was there was so much power. You know, Jesus just wasn't praying for aches and pains. The power that was being exhibited was simply off the chart. Here's what the Lord does. <laughs> he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't chew them out. He does something interesting. He tells a story. Verse 23, so he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now let me hit pause here. 
That's the next reference to the kingdom. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Notice that he links together kingdom and house. Underscoring the point, but the kingdom of God and the house of God are the same. You can't separate them. Verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. He actually says, come over here. <laughs> he brings them close and he asks the question, how in the world can the adversary cast out the adversary? If Satan casts out Satan, he'd be fighting against himself. If a civil war breaks out in a country, it's the end of that country. If family members in a house start fighting amongst themselves. It's the end of that family. And so Jesus is saying, if the devil's fighting the devil, then the devil's kingdom is obviously going to end. It's just an absurd way of thinking. If their statement, which is just ridiculous, was true, it means the suicide of Satan himself. All right, now, before I get into the next verse, which is another parable, but I think is awesome. It has a point that every Christian, particularly those in the Pentecostal and charismatic worlds, really need to hear. I want to say a few other things about this business of what the scribes were accusing Jesus of. To say that Jesus Christ was operating by the power of the devil is a reprehensible, outrageous, hideous, deplorable, horrible, disgusting indictment against the Lord of glory, the one who is pure, holy, and pure light and pure love, and has come to do the opposite, to destroy the works of the devil, as 1 John says. It is blasphemy of the highest order. And this gives us a glimpse into the irony of how the kingdom of darkness works. You see, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are opposed to one another on just about every front. The kingdom of darkness is actually operating here through those who were accusing Jesus of being complicit with the kingdom of darkness. You see, the scribes were accusing Jesus of siding with and aligning with and actually being a part of Satan's kingdom. But by that very accusation, they were revealing that they themselves were being used as pawns in the enemy's hands. It gives us insight into how the kingdom of darkness works. Namely, the kingdom of darkness operates by slander. And that's exactly what they were doing with Jesus here. They were slandering him. Slander is telling a lie. It's an accusation that is false by either taking a truth and exaggerating it to an extreme or fabricating that which is unreal and untrue. And slander is the chief means by which the kingdom of darkness puts the brakes on the kingdom of God. Anytime you see slander, the accusation that is not true or grossly exaggerated in order to put a person in a bad light, which is exactly what the scribes were trying to do with Jesus, discredit him, it is always, always, always motivated by the enemy. Because his name, devil, actually means slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren, as Revelation calls him. It is so disheartening to see Christian people engaging in this. 
religious people engaging in this. You have to understand the scribes were not heathens. They were Israelites. They had a covenant with God. They were God's people. And they were the ones who were slandering the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, if you study the life of the Lord, you will realize that he was slandered constantly, even when he was young. Here are just some references. He was accused of being an illegitimate child, John 8, 41. He was accused of being a deceiver, John 7, 12. He was accused of being mentally ill, John 10, 20. He was accused of being demon-possessed, Matthew 9, 34, John 7, 20. He was accused of being Beelzebub, which is another term for Satan, Matthew 10, 25, and also this passage in Mark. He was accused of being a blasphemer. Matthew 9, 3, Matthew 26, 65, Mark 2, 7, Luke 5, 21. He was accused of being a lawbreaker or quote-unquote unbiblical. Mark 2, 24, Luke 13, 34. He was accused of being a false prophet. Luke 7, 39. He was accused of being a glutton. Matthew eleven nineteen. He was accused of being a drunkard. Matthew eleven nineteen. He was accused of saying that he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, they twisted his words. Mark fourteen fifty eight. Strikingly, Jesus said, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, if they lied about me, if they slandered me, because that's what the kingdom of darkness does. I'm paraphrasing here. They will persecute you. They will lie about you. They will insult you, accuse you falsely, and slander you. John 15, 20. And this is true because the disciples caught the same kind of flack that Jesus did because they were flying over the target as well. And again, it came from religious people. All right. It did not come from the heathens. It came from the religious. And Paul of Tarsus followed the same pattern in that he too was slandered mercilessly as was his Lord. Paul was accused of being a man-pleaser and a coward, Galatians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. He was accused of being a false apostle, Galatians 1.11-2.10, 2 Corinthians 11.16-12, verse 12. He was accused of being a flatterer, 1 Thessalonians 2.5. He was slandered and his good was evil spoken of, 1 Corinthians 10.30. He was accused of being greedy, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5, and 9. He was accused of seeking glory from men. That is the imputation of evil motives to the heart, which is sinful. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6. He was accused of extorting God's people. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. 2 Corinthians 11, 7 to 21. He was accused of being a deceiver and a crafty manipulator. 2 Corinthians 6, 8 and 12, verse 16. He was given a bad report or bad reputation by some, 2 Corinthians 6.8. He was the subject of insults, 2 Corinthians 12.10. He was accused of being a controller, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 2, 9 to verse 11. He was accused of blasphemy, Acts 24, verse 6. He was accused of being a cult leader in effect, Acts 24, verse 5. He was accused of being a criminal, Acts 16, 20 to 21, 24, verse 5, and 2 Timothy 2, 9. Here's a point to consider. The disciple is not greater than his master. The kingdom of darkness, through religious people, slandered me. They will slander you. If you dare put your hand to the plow of God's work and the Lord is using you, this will be your destiny.
Jesus said in Luke 6 verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And in the social media era, we have a culture that thrives on words of honor, compliments, flattery, and many of God's people who are in the Lord's work in some capacity, pastors, preachers, missionaries, teachers, professors, whoever they may be, are ripe to seek glory from humans and to be human pleasers. And dear brother and sister, I want to say to you, if you will begin proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and living out your life for Jesus Christ, an audience of one, you too will be the subject of slander. And it's not going to come through scribes, religious people showing up at your house, saying that you're the tool of the devil. It will come through Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, email, Instagram, etc. We live in a cancel culture. I would exhort you, cancel your subscription to the world system. Cancel your subscription to Christian celebrityism. Cancel your subscription to the political system because it is part of the world system as we've covered many times in this podcast. Cancel your subscription to receiving the honor and praise of men. Join the cancel culture and cancel your subscription to all of it that is part of this passing world. And go all in on the insurgents and the gospel of the kingdom, knowing that slander will come your way. Now, when slander is being done to a servant of God, question will often arise, well, why would that person be saying these things? Why would they be making these accusations? And the answer is as old as the hills. It's as old as scripture itself. I will quote from the Bible. For he, Pilate, knew it was out of envy that they, the religious leaders, had handed Jesus over to him. It was jealousy. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the leaders of Jerusalem were jealous of Jesus Christ. And guess what? They were also jealous of his disciples. Here's another quote from the book of Acts. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Here's another verse. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And another verse. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women, but the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Typically, religious people will slander servants of the Lord for one of two reasons. One, religious jealousy, and two, being offended, taking offense and wanting to lash back out of that offense. The scribes were jealous. They were not bringing forth crowds like Jesus was. They weren't delivering people like Jesus was. And so they aligned themselves with the kingdom of darkness by accusing Jesus of being part of the kingdom of darkness. That's the irony. And they felt justified in doing so. Now, I'm going to close this episode 
by making a point that I think will help many of you. And I, I love it. I just absolutely love this. Here's how Jesus ends his parable in response to the scribes accusing him of being a servant of the devil. Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now, to understand this, we have to see the scene. Jesus is healing and delivering and exercising demons. What's happening here? If you can imagine Jesus in the realm that is unseen, walking into the kingdom of darkness and looking straight at the prince of darkness, and then by his own word of authority as the new Adam, which has authority over the creeping things, by his own word, binds, ties up the prince of darkness. His entire being is tied. He's bound by the word of Jesus Christ. And now, because the ruler of the house of darkness is bound, Jesus begins plundering Satan's kingdom. He begins pillaging it. He begins robbing it. He begins delivering men and women from the powers of the world system, from the powers of the demonic beings that were under the prince of darkness. He has bound the strong man. And because the strong man is bound, Jesus can now plunder his kingdom. And what does that plundering look like? Healing the sick, delivering the oppressed, casting out demons by his word out of human beings, setting them free from torture. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in that house with that crowd. He was plundering Satan's kingdom because the strong man, the prince of demons himself, was bound. He couldn't do anything about it. And here the scribes, here's the irony of irony, are accusing Jesus of operating by the prince of darkness. When in fact, Jesus was plundering Satan's own house. And Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, the devil, Satan, Lord of the Flies, was defenseless in the presence of Christ and could not offer protection to his own demons and evil spirits who he ruled over. That's what Jesus was doing. It was a demonstration that he was plundering the house of the devil. I grew up in uh, the charismatic world, the Pentecostal world first, and then the charismatic world after that. And it was part of their tradition during prayer over someone or for someone to begin to speak to the devil himself and say, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, um, point number one, you cannot find anywhere in the New Testament where the disciples of Jesus Christ are saying they're going to bind the devil or speaking to the devil that they're binding him or any hint or reference to anything like that. It's not there. It's not there in the Gospels, it's not in the book of Acts, it's not in any of the epistles. This concept of binding the devil is not there. Point one. 
So you have no scriptural justification to do that. In fact, I would very strongly advise against that. Because not only is it unbiblical, in a previous episode we talked about what Peter said and Jude said about speaking to principalities and powers. Point two, Satan has already been bound. And because he has already been bound by the word of Jesus Christ himself, the Lord Jesus plundered his house during his earthly ministry constantly, setting the captives free, healing, exercising demons, bringing deliverance to the oppressed and the possessed. So too you as a disciple of Jesus can also plunder the house of the enemy. It's open season to pillage his house. Why? Because... Jesus Christ, your Lord, my Lord, has bound him. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And that statement was made in response to the awful accusation, the slanderous defamation of the scribes, because it illustrated the opposite of what Jesus was actually doing in that home with that crowd on that note we will end this episode in the next episode i will be joined with a conversation partner and we will look at the next reference of the kingdom in the gospels if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the insurgents podcast and give it a five-star review on itunes this will help others find it also you can join frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.